Hi guys, Nancy Grace here, host of podcast Crime Stories with Nancy Grace. I've dedicated my life to fighting crime and helping crime victims. For a decade, I prosecuted violent felonies. Every day is a mission. Every day is a chance to stop crime and keep one more person safe. Listen to Crime Stories with Nancy Grace on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcast. In the recent history of documentary filmmaking, one scene stands out above all. The hot mic bathroom confession of Robert Durst in the Jinx. Now the person responsible for that moment, Sereb Kaufman, stepson of the victim, friend of the murderer, star of the documentary, for the first time ever, shares why he believes you're watching the furthest thing from the truth on this exclusive episode of Murder Homes. Listen to Murder Homes on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you love sports and true crime, then there's a new podcast from executive producer Dan Patrick and hosted by me, Jay Harris, that you won't want to miss. Playing Dirty Sports Scandals. Each week, I'm squeezing the juiciest details from some of the biggest sports scandals ever. I'm talking Marcus Dixon, Olympic gymnastics, Kane Velasquez, salacious Super Bowl-level scandals. Join me on the dark side of sports by listening to Playing Dirty Sports Scandals on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. What'd you think of Jeremy when you first met him at that dance? When I first met him, I thought he was cute. Um, <laughs> he was cute. He was uh, dangerous, I guess. This is Jamie Nellums. She was Jeremy Scott's girlfriend in 1987 and 1988. They were both 17 years old when they met at a teen dance club in Lakeland, Florida. This was right after Jeremy was acquitted in the Jewel Johnson murder, and then he and Jamie stayed together until his arrest in the murder of Donald Moorhead. Sixteen years into Jeremy's murder sentence, a detective from the Polk County Sheriff's Office contacted Jamie. Jeremy's fingerprints had been matched to the ones found in Michelle Schofield's Mazda, but the investigation didn't last long. Assistant State Attorney John Aguero the same man who prosecuted and convicted both Leo and Jeremy, quickly shuts down the investigation into Jeremy Scott. Ten months after Jamie is first questioned, criminal defense attorney Richard Bartman interviews her in late 2005. Bartman is representing Leo Schofield alongside his other attorney, Scott Cup. They're trying to finish the investigation into Jeremy Scott that the state barely started. So you remember speaking to this detective. What was the reason he said he was there? He just said he needed to come talk to me regarding Jeremy Scott. Anything else that he told you that he was there for? Um, He wanted me to take him to places that Jeremy hung out that I knew of. He had asked me where we had ever gone to be alone, and Mm -hmm. I told him about this place over off off 33 by I-4. He wanted me to take him there to show him where that was at, and I did that. Jamie says that 10 months earlier, she led the state's detective to a place along State Road 33 in North Lakeland. Now she's telling Richard Bartman what it was like when Jeremy first took her there. It was around 2 a.m. in the spring of 1987. Jamie was driving, and Jeremy was in the passenger seat directing her. He told me where to drive. I had just started driving and barely knew how to get around my house, let alone <laughs> how to get anywhere else. So okay. he told me where to turn and that's how I got it. Did he have any trouble finding this place? No, he knew exactly where it was at. You couldn't find it unless you knew what was at. Jeremy tells her when to slow down, to turn off at the cut, to pull on to the dirt path, back behind the tree line. There's palmetto bushes and garbage on the ground. No one else is back there. There's no streetlights, no houses in sight, and no cars on the road either. 
Jeremy and Jamie are alone. He had this thing about being outside. He liked to be outside. He liked to be outside when? When When we had sex. Jamie and Jeremy get out of the car and walk further from the main road into the dark. When you got there, what what was your impression of the area first time you went? That it was dirty and cold and it was dark. I remember being nervous because there was nobody around. I didn't like it. Teenagers would come to the spot along State Road 33 to drink beer, smoke weed, and make out. But Jamie had been warned to stay away after police began discovering dead girls in the water behind the palmetto bushes. One of those girls, Michelle Schofield, was found floating face down just a few months earlier in this very same drainage canal. Bone Valley, Chapter 6, Know That I Know. We talked to Leo's lawyer, Richard Bartman, more than 15 years after he interviewed Jamie Nellums. And I remember a chill went up my spine when she described what this guy had done to her. And the level of fear in this woman when we interviewed her, I, I, I can't, I've never forgotten that. Jamie tells Bartman that the violence began just weeks into her relationship with Jeremy Scott. There's punching, choking, and worse. She tells Bartman that Jeremy hit her pretty much every time she saw him. He hit me with, uh, across the face with a belt before. He hit me with uh, one of my boots before. Um, he hit me with a baseball bat once. Jamie had gone to Disney World with her sisters against Jeremy's wishes. When she returned, he walked her outside, picked up a baseball bat, and swung at her face. And that was, he didn't. The blow from the baseball bat left her jaw broken and her face disfigured. Her injuries and her story left a big impression on Richard Bartman. He still thinks about it today. And you saw her face and what Scott did to it. And this was years later because she didn't have the money to get her um, injuries fixed. So he, he had beaten her to such an extent that her jaw was deformed. Jamie was convinced that Jeremy was going to kill her. But instead, Jeremy directed his violence at someone else. On Halloween night in 1988, Jeremy murdered Donald Moorhead. He's arrested the following day and locked up without bail. Jamie is finally free from Jeremy. I think we talked to her for about two, three hours about his way of life, about how well he knew Lakeland, about how well he knew this area where the body was found, about his level of violence, about the way he beat up gay people, about the way he beat her. Um, If she would look at him wrong, he beat the shit out of her. The slightest provocation, he would get violent. 
So I could easily picture him killing Michelle over whatever. I mean, it, 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 it didn't have to be rational. And of course, I remember driving home from that thinking, Jesus Christ, this is, this is the guy. It matches in so many ways. Richard Bartman and Scott Cup keep gathering information about Jeremy's connection to Michelle Schofield's murder. They're making the case that Leo deserves a new trial. Not only do they have fingerprints that link Jeremy Scott to the vehicle Michelle was driving the night she went missing, now they have testimony that Jeremy used to take his girlfriend Jamie to the same place where Michelle's body was found. Richard Bartman could hardly believe what Jamie had told him. But when Kelsey and I listened to this interview, almost 15 years after it had been recorded, something else caught our attention. Did he ever... Did, did she, okay? Yeah. <laughs> I just haven't thought about this in a long time. And I'm sorry to stir it up. I, I really do apologize. But okay. <laughs> I, I, I don't mean anything personal, but it's questions i got to ask. Um, did he ever... Did he ever tell you anything, Jeremy, now, um, during the course of your relationship about the crimes he did, criminal acts, or any sort of criminal activity he was involved in? He told me he had killed a taxi cab driver. He was 16, 17 at the time, and that he had gotten away with it. And that was just a couple months before he got arrested for this Moorhead thing, when he was telling me that. Kelsey and I run down the list of murders that Jeremy's linked to. We know that Jeremy bragged about killing Jewel Johnson after he was acquitted of her murder. Jewel was found shot dead in a trailer behind her house. Jeremy's fingerprints were lifted from her eyeglasses and coin wrappers at the scene. Jewel Johnson is murder number one. And Jeremy was convicted in the 1988 murder of Donald Moorhead. He smashed him over the head with a grape juice bottle and strangled him with a telephone cord. Jeremy was forensically tied to that crime scene, and he admitted to that killing as well. Donald Moorhead is murder number two. And Jeremy's fingerprints were found inside Michelle Schofield's car. Her body was discovered in the same canal where Jeremy used to take Jamie to have sex with her. Michelle Schofield is murder number three. But now Jamie mentions that Jeremy had spontaneously confessed to another murder, the killing of a taxicab driver. Is this murder number four? We don't have a lot to go on, but we start digging. We know that if Jeremy killed a taxicab driver, it would most likely be in that two-year period between December 1986 when he's released after his acquittal of the Jewel Johnson murder, and Halloween of 1988, when he's locked up for killing Donald Moorhead. That matches what Jamie told Bartman. Jeremy would have been 16 or 17 at the time. We search through databases for unsolved homicides in Florida. We comb through newspaper archives for stories about cab drivers killed in Central Florida between 1986 and 1988. And then, one murder catches our attention. In the spring of 1987, right near the Polk County line, a 25-year-old taxicab driver named Joseph LeVere was shot dead just outside a little community called Intercession City. A suspect named Dan Odie was arrested and brought to trial, twice. But the second trial ended with the defendant's acquittal no one else is ever charged in the death of Joseph LeVere. So this is an unsolved murder. From his records, we know that Jeremy was not in jail at that time. It happened just six weeks after Michelle Schofield was killed. So we dig a little deeper. We start piecing together the crime from newspaper coverage. And this is what we learn. It's late at night, April 10th, 1987. LeVere is driving a taxi for the Yellow Cab Company, and he's close to finishing his shift when he gets a call from his dispatcher, 
directing him to pick up a passenger at a Kmart in Kissimmee. Lavare picks up the passenger around 10.45 p.m., but about an hour later, the cab driver's body is spotted just off the shoulder of Old Tampa Highway. It seems that whoever killed Joseph Lavare stole the taxi, turned off the highway, crossed the railroad tracks, and sped onto a quiet residential street in Intercession City. He must have been driving fast because he quickly lost control of the vehicle, sideswiping a parked car and crashing into a power pole that knocked out the electricity in the neighborhood. Residents ran outside to see what happened and caught a glimpse of the suspect as he fled the scene. The witnesses told police they'd seen a white man, around 5'10", of a thin or medium build, running from the cab. He was wearing jeans and a flannel shirt, had brown hair, and screamed, It's gonna blow! before he disappeared into the woods. Inside the taxi, deputies found a black baseball cap sitting in the back seat. We were able to get our hands on a photo of this cap. There's a design on the front of it. A skull wearing a cowboy hat with a big Confederate flag in the background. And then there's this other part of Bartman's interview with Jamie. I replay it over and over again. Jamie says that when she first met Jeremy, there was something about his appearance that stood out to her. When we first met, he dyed his hair, which I thought was weird. He dyed it, he bleached his hair blonde. Jamie thought this was odd because Jeremy never maintained that color. Naturally, his hair was brown, and when the dark roots grew back in, Jamie said he never bleached it again. She and Jeremy met just before his 18th birthday, about a week after Joseph LeVere was killed. It's a small thing, but it could match up with what we know about LeVere's murder. It would make sense that the suspect, knowing he'd been seen, might try to change his appearance. And there's another clue in Richard Bartman's interview with Jamie. She mentions that Jeremy wasn't particularly close with anyone at that time, except maybe his younger brother. That brother has a pretty distinct name, so we were able to track down Royal Dean Scott. To accept this call and all future calls, press 1 now. All phone calls are subject to monitoring and recording. You have $38.24. Hi, Royal. Yeah. He was locked up in the Russell County Jail in Alabama, awaiting transfer to state prison on an obstruction of justice charge. I sent Royal Dean a letter, told him I opened a phone account with the jail, and gave him my number. I got no problem with answering just about anything you got to ask. I mean, as long as it don't incriminate Jeremy on something that's going to hurt him, I got no problem with that. I start chatting with Royal Dean pretty frequently over a period of a few weeks. He calls when he can and sometimes leaves voicemail messages. We talk about what Jeremy was like as a kid and their family life. But I'm also trying to find out more about Jeremy's possible links to the murder of Joseph LeVere. Did you guys live uh, in Intercession City at some point? Oh, yeah. That's where me and my wife met. <laughs> okay. That's, and, uh, Intercession City is where, well, me and Jeremy pretty much grew up, really. I mean... Did you ever hear anything? Because yeah. one of the other things that Jeremy um, confessed to Jamie about was um, robbing a, a cab driver um, on the way home from um, Kissimmee towards uh, Intercession City. Did you ever hear anything about that? Yes, I heard about that one. What is that? What what happened? Uh, well, I'd heard about the cab driver uh, being robbed, but I didn't. I couldn't tell you yes or no. It was Jeremy. Yeah. He doesn't seem to want to go into this with me. Still, Royal Dean keeps calling. We talk about his legal troubles, and I keep asking about Jeremy hoping he shares more about their time in Intercession City. And finally, he lets something slip. I remember him saying something about robbing the cab driver. I remember my brother telling me about jumping out of a car, I mean, about taking that guy's money, and that it had something about a gun. 
Do you ever remember him with blonde hair? Yeah. <laughs> that would be about right, too. Is he trying to change his identity him. or something? I think so. Uh, I remember the blonde hair, and I remember the cab driver being robbed, and I remember him saying something about it, and that he had to leave for a little while. Yeah, see, I never got any details. I just know that my brother disappeared after that for a while. After this conversation, Royal Dean disappeared too. The phone call stopped coming when he was transferred to a state prison outside of Montgomery. Hi, I'm Jason Flom, CEO and founder of Lava for Good Podcasts, home to Bone Valley, Wrongful Conviction, The War on Drugs, and many other great podcasts. Today, we're asking you, our listeners, to take part in a survey. Your feedback is going to help inform how we make podcasts in the future. Your complete and candid answers will help us continue to bring you more insightful and inspiring stories about important topics that impact us all. So please go to lavaforgood.com slash survey and participate today. Thank you for your support. Bone Valley is sponsored by Stand Together. Stand Together is a philanthropic community that partners with America's boldest change makers to tackle the root causes of our country's biggest problems, including the broken criminal justice system. Christina Dent is one of many entrepreneurs partnering with Stand Together to end the war on drugs, the underlying cause of many problems such as over-incarceration and the criminalization of addiction in communities across the country. As a foster mom, Christina came into contact with the war on drugs when she saw how it was ripping apart the family she worked with. She witnessed how kids were affected and how mothers wanted something better for their families but didn't have the tools to get there themselves. Christina Dent started a nonprofit called End It For Good because she knew there was a better solution to help these families. She's working to end the war on drugs in Mississippi and build consensus around the state to help families struggling with substance abuse problems find a different path forward than the one they've been given. Stand Together has many more stories like this one as it partners with thousands of changemakers who are driving solutions in education, healthcare, poverty, and the criminal justice system. To learn more about the War on Drugs, listen to the War on Drugs podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Kelsey and I go down to the Osceola County Clerk's Office to look at the case files and trial transcripts from the murder of Joseph LeVere. I wanted to find out what was collected from the cab to see if there was any DNA evidence or fingerprints that could be run. One of the great things about doing research in Florida is the state's sunshine law that requires that all state, county, and municipal records be made available to the public. But we don't get off to a very promising start. After asking for the file, we wait for about an hour. And then they send down not one, not two, but three clerks to talk to us. Hello. Hi. I'm Gilbert King. How are you? I'm good. How are you? Thank you very Donna much. Donna Richardson. For your help. You're welcome. Hi, I'm Shannon. Hi, I'm, Shannon. Hi, I'm yeah. Susie. Nice, nice Susie. to meet nice you. To meet you. This is uh, Kelsey. Hi. Hello. Nice to meet you. Yes. Um, so um, you're interested in the Daniel Ott file. Right. Um, Donna is mispronouncing his name, but Daniel Odie was the man who was tried twice and was eventually acquitted of killing the cab driver, Joseph LeVere. It doesn't have the arrest affidavit. It's a partial file. Okay. So um, what, what's in here you are entitled to to view. Donna shows me a slim file. It can't have more than a hundred pages in it. Usually, the clerk's office will turn over boxes of files with transcripts, police reports, and depositions. Thousands of pages. Again, this is all supposed to be public record, and I'm entitled to view all of it. Or preferable. Um, I just want to look at it first and see what's in there. Because okay. we're looking. There's, these were two trials, two homicide trials. Mm-hmm. Usually there's like transcripts, um, notation about where physical evidence might be. Um, Since he was found not guilty, the yeah. physical evidence would no longer be available. And, and is it disposed or is it just not available to the public? It's with the this is infuriating me. 
and I'm trying not to show it. If Dan Odie really didn't kill Joseph Levere, that means the murderer might still be out there. I can't understand why this isn't available and why the clerk won't tell me where I can find the information I'm looking for. He can't be tried again. Right, right. but I'm saying we, we think we know who did the crime. Oh, okay. And so it would be lovely to just have some records to look at, trial transcripts, see what physical evidence did exist. Maybe there was a hat we know of in the newspaper accounts, that's all we know. But maybe there's some DNA or some hair fibers that might match the guy we think did it. But we'll, we'll go through all this and look through it and just see if we can find any clues as to where this stuff might be. Um, so that goes back to you guys. Somebody has to sit with him? Yeah, while? so the two options that you have. We're told someone will need to observe us if we're going to view the files in the courthouse. This has never happened to me at a clerk's office before. We decide to get copies made so we can go through them without someone looking over our shoulder. But something's really bothering me about this case. It feels like it's been flagged. Why do they send down three clerks to tell us we're only entitled to view a partial file? They're not showing me these files because Dan Odie was found not guilty? It doesn't make any sense to me. Kelsey and I sit and wait for the copies to be made. It's such a small file. There is right now. I'm on a fucking warpath right now. We're gonna we're gonna go we're gonna go into the sheriff's department and then we're gonna go to the state attorney's office. Never heard of fucking something like this in Florida that they did the trial transcripts on Every fucking single trial I've ever looked into transcripts of this. Later that same day, we drive to the Osceola County Sheriff's Office. We tell them that we might have some important information on an old cold case in their jurisdiction. They send two young detectives down to us, but they won't let us record our meeting. The detectives are friendly, and they listen to what we have to say, but they don't seem to know anything about this case. Okay, we just left the Osceola County Sheriff's Office. Uh, it's raining out now, and uh, the two detectives in there told us that, who were very interested, they told us that they were going to look through the files, see if they can find some physical evidence. The detectives say they'll get back to us, but never do. I keep calling for updates with no luck. After the tone, please record your message. When you finish recording, hang up or press the pound key for more options. Oh, good morning, Detective Miller. Uh, this is Gilbert King. Uh, we met with you a couple weeks ago about that um, cab driver killing back in 1987 and Detective Cortez. And I just wanted to follow up with you because I had a file of information on that particular case. I know we didn't really leave you with anything. But I'm, I'm happy to Since we're having no luck accessing the files or getting any info from law enforcement, Kelsey and I try to find the defendant in the case, the 19-year-old kid who stood trial twice for this murder, Dan Odie. So we did find an address for Dan Odie that looked pretty solid. It looked like... He'd been at that address for quite some time. It was all the way out in East Polk County, which we talk about parts of Lakeland being rural, but it doesn't it doesn't compare to East Polk County. You know, we got out there, it was just this long straight road, and I know we were there for miles, driving on this road for miles, and we didn't pass another car. There was no houses, no structures. You know, our cell service was in and out. We got to the street Dan Odie lives on, and we saw it was a dirt road. It wasn't like a very well-maintained dirt road. So we drove down the road, we found his address, and we saw that there were dogs in the yard, big dogs, and there was a flagpole with a Confederate flag on it. So it just, it seemed a little like, hey, maybe we should give this guy a heads up before we, like, go through his gate and, like, have to approach these dogs and, like, knock on his door. It just, it didn't, it didn't feel super safe. So we went and we, like, found a, a place to sit in the car. We started calling the phone numbers. You have reached the voicemail box of 863. Uh, which one was that? 
Uh, that's the first one, let's see. Hello, please leave a message after the tone. Nobody answers their phone anymore. Hello, is this Mr. Dan Ott? It is. Mr. Ott, my name is Gilbert King, and I am working on a criminal justice uh, report. I was also pronouncing his name wrong. It's Odie. Dan Odie. So I don't know if you're around, but we would just love to talk to you for a few minutes if you're available. Yeah, I'm available. All right. Could I stop by and just see you in about 10 minutes or so? Oh, okay. All right, I'll call you right when I get in front of the gate then, sir. All right. Thank you very much. Uh-oh. Fucking believe this? All right. We're going to get out in the fucking pouring rain, but we're going to have a fucking interview. All right. Let's just go over some questions here real quick. How are you? Thanks so much. We, we tried. We found your address. We had like nine numbers. Piglet, go lay down. But, um, I actually, when I started reading about your case, I couldn't believe what you went through. Oh, yeah. Twice. Was... They tried you twice? Yeah. I know, like, my first impression when we first saw Dan was, I was just a little scared. I was like, did we... Do we have the right idea about this case? Are we sure this guy didn't do it? Because he's a big guy. He's 6'4", pretty, like, built, too. He's, like, you know, hefty, like, football player type of build. And then on top of that, he was wearing a baseball cap with a Confederate flag on it. You know, of course, the the Confederate flag hat was a key piece of evidence in this case, I mean, obviously not the hat that Dan was wearing, but there was a baseball cap left in the taxi cab that they think belonged to the, you know, the murderer who fled the scene. So there was definitely a moment where I think Gilbert and I were probably thinking the same thing, like, oh, geez, did this guy actually do it? Do we have this wrong? He invites us in. And we all take a seat on his couch, facing a TV. There's also a big aquarium next to us. You can hear its water pump in the background. We asked Dan about what happened when he was arrested for killing the cab driver, Joseph Lavere. Well, when, when they arrested me, I was in the truck, and, and like I told them in court, and I was down there buying weed. I was honest with him. I had nothing to hide. Dan tells us that after he's pulled over in his truck, police officers tell him to get down. There's a picture of him in the Orlando Sentinel, handcuffed, shirtless, and splayed out on the ground with a rifle-toting deputy standing over him. And when they arrested me, that's what I thought they was throwing down on me for, is weed. And when they had me on the ground, and I said, well, what are you arresting me for? He said, first-degree murder. I like to pass out. I, what? Are you kidding me? I just, I couldn't get my breath. I was like, what? Dan didn't understand why police had been looking for him. He wasn't really a troublemaker. And at the time of his arrest, all we could find on his record were minor traffic infractions. After he was booked into jail, they fingerprinted him, drew his blood, and plucked hairs from his scalp all for comparison with the physical evidence recovered from the taxi cab. And none of it matched Dan. On the night of the murder, Dan was at a party with about a dozen other people. They all vouched for Dan, that he was with them all night. No way he left and killed someone. With his alibi witnesses and all the physical evidence that did not connect him to the murder of Joseph LeVere, Guards at the jail were telling Dan that he had nothing to worry about. He'd be going home soon. But I was 19, scared to death, you know, I'm fixing fry for something I didn't do. I was scared, I ain't gonna lie, I was scared. Dan's father didn't want his son to be represented by a public defender. Yes, my daddy had a junkyard. And he sold, had a crusher to come out there. 
and so all the cars he had junked him just to get me a lawyer because my daddy says son don't worry he said i know you didn't do this i didn't raise you this way he said this is bullshit he said i spend every dollar i got he said you're not going down for this dan's dad was able to raise enough money to hire a private attorney you'll never guess who they hired Jack Evans said this is one of the most framed jobs he'd ever seen in his life. Jack Edmund, the same lawyer who later represented Leo Schofield at trial. The guy in the western cut suit with the tiny waist and the lifesavers. But I never thought much of Jack because I always tried to call him in jail. I was scared. And he'd say, everything's all right, son. Don't worry about it. Hang up. So I called my mom. I said, Mom, you got fired this lawyer. I'm going to die if you don't. Seems like Edmund had a habit of dodging his clients until just before trial. But the prosecution was certainly investigating their case. But it still puzzles me as to why Dan? I don't understand it. I don't even, Dan didn't even live in Intercession City. While Dan sat in jail, people close to him started getting knocks on their doors. One of them was Tanya Dean, who was dating Dan's cousin. She remembers the night the cab driver was murdered. I remember the power going out, and I think I was near the area, but I didn't see anything. I just heard about it after the fact, and then a detective came to the house. When detectives knock on her door, she's 15 and pregnant with her second baby. I can 100% recall walking out with my child on my hip and the detective saying, we know you've seen him. And I said, seen who? What, what do you mean? I didn't see anything. you seen Daniel Odie. you seen Dan do it. No, I didn't. You're going to tell us that you seen Daniel Odie or that baby on your hip and in the one in your stomach is going to be gone. You remember that distinction? 100%. I will never forget that day. His name was Buddy Shepard. I, I will never, ever, I just got chills. I'll never forget that. Deputy Buddy Shepard was a detective with the Osceola County Sheriff's Office, and he was the lead investigator on the LeVere murder. I asked Tanya if she's sure that Buddy Shepard wasn't just warning her that she was under oath, and if she committed perjury, there could be consequences that would affect her children. Absolutely not. That is not the, no, absolutely not. It was a direct threat. And I was told to say that I seen him. I remember because I was a minor, um, I had to have a parent present because I had to go down and make a recorded statement. And I remember telling my dad, Dad, they're making me lie. They're, they're telling me what I have to say or, or they're going to take my babies. He said, sissy, they can't do that. They, they, they can't take your children because you tell the truth. All you have to do is what I've taught you is tell the truth. So I went down to give a statement and the detective kept on saying, So tell us, tell us, it was Dan, wasn't it? Remember, it was Dan, and he would point to my stomach. And and I said, no, it wasn't. I I didn't see anything. I didn't see nothing. And he turned off the recorder, and he slammed his fist down, and he says, you're going to tell us it was Dan. Do you remember what I told you? You're going to tell us it was Dan. And this was Buddy Shepard again? Yes, it was. I was terrified. I was terrified. Tanya says she doesn't give in to Buddy Shepard's threats. But it turns out there were other young mothers in town who claimed that Shepard tried to get them to lie. One of them was Debbie Murphy. Well, Debbie Murphy was their main witness. That's the only thing they had against me. And she was pointing me out. She said she seen me over 600 yards away at 2 o'clock in the morning running across the railroad tracks. At trial, the state's witnesses point to Dan Odie as the man they saw get out of the taxi cab. 
But what's odd is that in the witness's initial statements to police, they had described the suspect as being somewhere between five foot eight and six feet tall and weighing around 160 pounds. That is not Dan Odie. At the time, Dan was six foot four and weighed 235 pounds, which is the average size of a tight end in the National Football League. He's kind of hard to miss. Dan Odie's friends are all testifying, under oath, that Dan was with them all night. The jury has to decide which witnesses are lying, and they can't do it. They fail to reach a verdict, and a mistrial is declared. But just two months later, the state tries Dan Odie again. And everybody kind of didn't want to pursue it, except for Buddy Shepard. Oh, Buddy Shepard, he wasn't letting it go. He was just... He was bound and determined to frame me. He wasn't going to let it go. Debbie Murphy takes the stand again in the second trial. But in the middle of her testimony, the trial grinds to a halt. She came clean on the second trial. She broke down and started crying. And they stopped and said, what's wrong? She said, I can't do this no more. She said, Dan knows I've never seen him that night. I know Dan from school. i never seen Dan on them railroad tracks that night. She said, I haven't seen Dan since we got out of school. And she told him, you know, look, I was paid to say this. I was threatened with my kids if I didn't say this against Daniel Odie. And I was like, wow, finally come true, you know. You are so At least, lucky. Oh, man, I'll tell you. I'll tell you. After the trial, Dan says Debbie apologized for lying about seeing him on the railroad tracks that night. I told her, I understand, you know, I'm just glad you finally came forward because I was fixing to go to the electric chair for something I know I didn't do. But she finally came forward and told the truth. There was a quick investigation into the claims that Buddy Shepard was threatening young mothers in Intercession City. Despite the allegations, he was cleared. On October 20th, 1987, Dan is acquitted of the murder of cab driver Joseph LaVere. It was a great feeling because my mom had, had three strokes while I was in there. And when, when I was accused not of it no more, she broke down and cried and felt you could just see weight lifted off of her. Because I was her baby, you know, of all my brothers, I was her baby. And she, she knew I didn't do it, but she just, she really thought she'd never seen it again like this. And when they said not guilty, this everybody jumped up. But Dan Odie had spent six months in jail, and he sat through two trials facing the death penalty. And despite being found not guilty, he still doesn't feel like his name has been cleared. But it's just, it's still, to this day, I mean, I don't think about it. I know what's right and what's wrong, and I know I didn't do it and all this. But when you meet people from back then, that you see them somewhere on the street today, and they kind of look at you like, oh, yeah, hey. and You know they're thinking, did you do it or did you not? But I just wish there was a way, without a shadow of a doubt, that I could show everybody that I did not do this. I want to see that physical evidence. I do too. Oh still my have God! It. I would, I would love for y'all to do the DNA and find out who really did it. I would just really like to know who did it. When we first walked in to talk to Dan, we weren't sure what to expect. But listening to Dan tell his story and talk about his innocence, it's hard not to think about Leo. They both want us to keep investigating their cases from 35 years ago. They want so badly to get to the truth, to have their names cleared so they can get on with their lives. The state insists that they had the right man in Dan Odie, but that the jury just saw it differently. So after his acquittal, they don't investigate any further. But if the state is wrong, that means that the murderer of Joseph LeVere may still be out there somewhere. I just can't stop thinking. 
This has to be Jeremy. Are you ready to fight back against crime? Hi guys, Nancy Grace here, host of podcast Crime Stories with Nancy Grace. I've dedicated my life to fighting crime and helping crime victims. For a decade, I prosecuted violent felonies, personally investigating, prosecuting, and covering literally thousands of cases. It's so easy to think it will never happen to me or my family, but that is simply not true. Every day on Crime Stories with Nancy Grace, we shine a light on unsolved homicides, heat up cold cases, and help find missing people, especially children. We speak with family members, investigators, CSI, reporters, and experts in every field. Every day is a mission. Every day is a chance to stop crime and keep one more person safe. Listen to Crime Stories with Nancy Grace on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcast. Bring a little optimism into your life with The Bright Side, a new kind of daily podcast from Hello Sunshine, hosted by me, Danielle Robay, and me, Simone Boyce. Every weekday, we're bringing you conversations about culture, the latest trends, inspiration, and so much more. Thank you for taking the light, and you're going to shine it all over the world, and it makes me really happy. I never imagined that I would get the chance to carry this honor and help be a part of this legacy. Listen to The Bright Side on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Open your free iHeart app and search The Bright Side. In the recent history of documentary filmmaking, one scene stands out above all. The hot mic bathroom confession of Robert Durst and the Jinx. Now the person responsible for that moment, Sereb Kaufman, stepson of the victim, friend of the murderer, star of the documentary, for the first time ever, shares why he believes you're watching the furthest thing from the truth on this exclusive episode of Murder Homes. Listen to Murder Homes on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. It's 2010, 23 years after Michelle Schofield was killed. More than five years have passed since the unidentified fingerprints in the Mazda were matched to Jeremy Scott. And finally, Leo's granted an evidentiary hearing, which he hopes will lead to a new trial. His lawyers prepare to present the new evidence, the fingerprints and Jamie Nellum's testimony about Jeremy's violence and how he brought her to the same spot where Michelle's body was found. All of the things we found out about him um, made him the killer. This is Richard Bartman, Leo's attorney. And it certainly eviscerated any any um, possibility that Leo did this. If this case went to trial with all that evidence, there would have been mountains of doubt about Leo being the killer. And it would have created all sorts of Um, very clear pictures in my mind that not only wasn't it Leo, but we knew who did this. It was Jeremy Scott. Both Jeremy and Leo are brought from their respective prisons to the Polk County Jail to attend the hearing. This is the first time that Jeremy and Leo will be in the same room together. Leo's wife, Chrissy, has been waiting for this day in court for a long time. In our mind, in my mind, there was absolutely no way to lose this. It's a no-brainer. You've got physical evidence now that was not in the case before. So in anticipation of the hearing, um, I bought him two suits, had them tailored. They were packed. We were ready to go. The hearing begins on May 5th, 2010. Jeremy Scott is called to testify and he's questioned by C.J. Benefield, an assistant state attorney. What's your full name, please, sir? Jeremy Lynn Scott. I want to ask you, did you ever know a person named Michelle Schofield? No, sir. I'm going to ask you, did you kill Michelle Schofield? No, sir, I didn't. Are you aware that a fingerprint of yours was found in her vehicle? Yes, sir, I am. When Jeremy Scott is called to testify, he denies killing Michelle. But the assistant state attorney doesn't really seem committed to getting a consistent story out of him. Tell me about your activities back then. 
my activities was I wasn't I wasn't into stealing cars or tires. My thing was breaking cars, stereo, stereo systems, and speakers. That was my thing. How did you get transportation to do these activities? Jamie's car. Jamie was not aware aware of it. Do you know about when you met Jamie? April 17, 1987. How do you remember that date? Because my birthday is on the 29th of April. He's saying that he used his girlfriend Jamie's car to steal stereo equipment from abandoned vehicles. But Jamie and Jeremy didn't even meet until about six weeks after Michelle Schofield was killed. The state lets these inconsistencies go unchallenged. The state says they trust Jeremy's story about why his fingerprints were found in the car because state attorney John Aguero believes him. John Aguero, the prosecutor with the electric chair tie clip, is called as a witness to talk about his meeting with Jeremy. So I had Mr. Scott brought back from whatever correctional institute he was in uh, to my office. Jeremy was brought to Aguero's office in 2005 to talk about the prints. The two men spoke behind closed doors. There were no other witnesses and no tape recordings. All we have to go on is Aguero's word. I told him that his fingerprint was found in a car, that uh, I had put Mr. Schofield in prison for the rest of his life for killing his wife, and if he didn't do it, I had to know it. Uh, therefore, uh, I would give him immunity. That it was more important for me to know the truth than it was uh, than anything else. John Aguero is saying that in this one-on-one meeting, when he questioned Jeremy about his fingerprints, he offered Jeremy immunity. Essentially, confess to killing Michelle Schofield and you won't be charged with the crime. Mr. Uh, Scott, as I said, was cooperative. I think he fully understood immunity, fully understood that uh, it was important to me that if he did this murder, it would be, I, I couldn't prosecute him, but I could let Leo Schofield out of jail. I've asked lawyers and legal experts about the kind of full immunity Aguero claims he offered Jeremy in this closed-door meeting. And I've been told it just doesn't happen like this, or it isn't supposed to. And it makes no sense to me why Aguero would do that. Because if Jeremy admitted under full immunity that he killed Michelle, Leah would be released from prison and no one would ever be charged with Michelle's murder. And on top of how little sense it makes, I can't find any documentation of this alleged immunity offer. Leo's lawyers say they made repeated requests for proof of it, too. And the state's response is telling. They don't turn over any documentation. They just argue about the number of requests Leo's lawyers made. So no proof of immunity is ever produced. What was his explanation as to the fingerprint being in that vehicle? Mr. Scott indicated that at the time he was a thief. Aguero says he looked Jeremy in the eye and asked him if he killed Michelle Schofield. Jeremy said he didn't, that he's just a car stereo thief. And Aguero believes him? This is the same prosecutor who tried to send Jeremy Scott to the electric chair for killing Donald Moorhead, arguing to the court that Jeremy was a cold-blooded criminal who couldn't be trusted. After getting this information and the investigation was complete, did you do anything with it? Well, I I did not go any further. I made notes in my file concerning my investigation, and I closed the investigation. At any time, did you uh, notify the defendants? They believe Jeremy. His reasons for being in the car was credible. How do you believe that is credible? Now, everyone is left waiting and wondering if the Polk County judge presiding over this hearing will also believe Jeremy Scott. 
Judge Keith Spoto's ruling is released just six weeks after the hearing. Spoto writes, Given Mr. Scott's past history and modus operandi, there is every reason to believe that he simply stumbled upon the car after her murder and after her body had been hidden, stole stereo equipment from her car, thereby leaving his fingerprints in the vehicle. In other words, Judge Spoto considers Jeremy's past history and rules that Jeremy Scott is simply a car stereo thief, that he's telling the truth as far as the court is concerned. It's almost as if it was inconceivable to Judge Spoto that a known murderer who was tried twice for homicide by this same office might also steal from his victim afterwards, just like Jeremy did after killing Jewel Johnson when he stole her coins, and just like Jeremy did after killing Donald Moorhead when he stole his car. Judge Spoto denies Leo's motion for a new trial. I'm stunned as I read this opinion, but maybe I shouldn't be, given that so many of the judges in Polk County come from the state attorney's office. For example, Judge Spoto, who presided over Leo's hearing, worked as a prosecutor in the Tenth Circuit alongside John Aguero for nearly a decade. My God, I've been... I have been wrong about virtually everything with I, from the beginning, which I thought was going to happen. So I feel bad about that. Personally, misread everything. Scott Cup thought at one point that the discovery of Jeremy's fingerprints in Michelle's car would spring Leo out of prison in just 90 days. But once again, his intuition that Leo would be given a new trial is wrong. It's the greatest personal and professional regret of my life that Leo Schofield is still in prison. Richard Bartman, Leo's other lawyer. No one really wanted to admit they were wrong. No one really took the kind of close look we were urging them to take. People got hooked on these mythological remembrances of evidence that didn't exist. Mythological remembrances of evidence. That's right. Judge Spoto couldn't resist writing about Leo Sr.'s premonition. It's included in his summary of the state's evidence, which Spoto says is, quote, strong and sufficient for a jury to convict Leo Schofield. How is that evidence of guilt? It's not. It's just some anomaly. It's just something that comes up. Doesn't mean anything. It can mean a million things. The guy's histrionic. The guy's a nut. It's not evidence of guilt. It's not evidence of anything. That's the urban legend stuff. It just has its own, you know, the snowball going downhill and you can't stop it. Meanwhile, the physical evidence that Cup and Bartman do present about Jeremy's connection to Michelle's murder, it's dismissed by the judge as a happy coincidence. As if it was just bad luck for Jeremy that his fingerprints turned up in the car of a young woman who'd been found dead in a dark place where he was known to hang out. I, I, for the life of me, don't understand how a trial judge or an appellate court could have looked at what we came up with and said, nothing to see here. This disappointment hits no one harder than Leo. And by the time he learned of the judge's decision, he was still reeling from an encounter that happened right before he entered the courtroom. I'm going to tell you this, and I should probably filter it. I'm not going to filter it. I'm going to let you filter what you want to filter. This is, and if I'm wrong for this, and you tell me I'm wrong, and so be it. I've been wronged for a long time. I've been wronged. I would have been justified in my mind to be wrong. It's the morning before the first day of the evidentiary hearing. Leo and Jeremy are both brought to the jail across from the courthouse for the hearing. They're supposed to be separated from each other since they're now involved in the same case. So Leo is grouped with other defendants who are due in court that day. And so they have they had all the guys handcuffed two by two. There's 33 of us. So I'm the odd man out. 
so I'm, I'm not handcuffed to anybody. And so there's a tunnel that goes under the, the road between the jail and the, and the courthouse that they bring the inmates through. It's a long tunnel. There's only one door in and one door on the other side out. There's no door, doors on the inside. It's just a concrete, unfinished concrete tunnel under the road. They're led through the door and start walking through the tunnel. They march down and stop in front of the door that leads to the courthouse. There's an officer there, and he starts banging on the door, waiting for someone on the other side to let them in. Meanwhile, all the way back at the end of the tunnel, here comes Jeremy come on another van. He was by himself. Leo has seen Jeremy's mugshots before. It's a face that's seared into Leo's mind. I can see him way back there walking up, and I can see him walking up. And I had enough time to stand there thinking, my heart starts racing. And I said, I know these people are not going to just walk the murder of my wife right up in front of me in this tunnel right here after all that I've gone through. And I just made a decision in my mind. If they march him up and put him alongside me, that's God's will. I'm going to end it right here in this hallway. And so I'm, my adrenaline is pumping, it's pumping, it's pumping, and march him up, and I'm, I'm getting ready, and all I'm, gonna, I'm just going to wrap these handcuffs around his neck, and I'm going to take him down. And they're not going to be able to beat me off of him until 20-something years of frustration comes out, and I get justice from Michelle, and it's done. Now you can go ahead and put me in prison. Now I belong there, you know what I mean? You know, and I'm not a murderer. That's who they made me. I mean, I've had to fight for my life in here. When I first came in, 22 years old, young and white in the prison system, no dad's coming, no police coming, nobody cares. You, you have to do this or be raped or something stupid like that. So you know where your lines are. I know where my lines are. You cannot cross that line without certain things happening. And if you're going to march the murder of my wife and put him upside, that's a line you cannot cross. Just so happened they got him maybe 10 feet away from me and this guy up the top stairs turns around sees him and he knows and he yells, stop, stop, back him up, back him, they yank him back. And I went, Whew. I mean, I just, I just have this massive release of, of, of you know, because that was, that was pretty scary. In the basement of the courthouse, Leo says he waits in a holding cell with the other defendants. Because of Jeremy's violent behavior, he's kept in an isolation cell right by the elevator. The jail is short-staffed. There aren't any correction officers down there. And Leo's name is called over the loudspeaker. Schofield approached the elevator. And so I'm thinking, I gotta walk right by his cell. Now he doesn't know me from Adam, but he knows who I am by name. And this is when I knew, because I really wasn't sure. I mean, I don't know, you know, what's the, what's the percentage on it being a coincidence that this known murderer is forensically linked to my wife's car and he didn't have anything to do with it. After everything we know about him. And, and my thought is, if you are accusing me of doing something that I know I did not do, I'm gonna be at them bars when I see you walk by I might not do anything stupid, but I'm going to have something to say. I'm going to say something. You got the wrong guy or something. Anything. I'm going to to say something. Here's your opportunity. So I walk up there and I go to the bars to a cell. And I stand there and I look at him. He's sitting there profiled to the front of the cell. And he won't look at me. And I'm standing there waiting for him to look at me. I need him to look at me. And he couldn't look at me. He couldn't even face me. And I told him, Know that I know, Jeremy. Know that I know. And he never says anything to me. I knew in that moment I was looking at the murder of my wife. I knew it. Bone Valley is a production of Lava for Good Podcast in association with Signal Company Number 1. Our executive producers are Jason Flom and Kevin Wordis. Kara Kornhaber is our senior producer. 
Britt Spangler is our sound designer. Roxandra Guidi is our editor. Fact-checking by Maximo Anderson. Our producer and researcher is Kelsey Decker. Our theme song, The One Who's Holding the Stars, is performed by Lee Bob and the Truth. It was written by Leo Schofield and Kevin Herrick in Florida's Hardy Correctional Institution. Bone Valley is written and produced by me, Gilbert King. You can follow the show on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter at Lava for Good. To see photos and documents from our investigation and exclusive behind-the-scenes content, visit lavaforgood.com slash bonevalley. Hi, guys. Nancy Grace here, host of podcast Crime Stories with Nancy Grace. I've dedicated my life to fighting crime and helping crime victims. For a decade, I prosecuted violent felonies Every day is a mission. Every day is a chance to stop crime and keep one more person safe. Listen to Crime Stories with Nancy Grace on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcast. In the recent history of documentary filmmaking, one scene stands out above all. The hot mic bathroom confession of Robert Durst in The Jinx. Now, the person responsible for that moment, Sereb Kaufman, stepson of the victim, friend of the murderer, star of the documentary, for the first time ever, shares why he believes you're watching the furthest thing from the truth on this exclusive episode of Murder Homes. Listen to Murder Homes on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you love sports and true crime, then there's a new podcast from executive producer Dan Patrick and hosted by me, Jay Harris, that you won't want to miss. Playing Dirty Sports Scandals. Each week, I'm squeezing the juiciest details from some of the biggest sports scandals ever. I'm talking Marcus Dixon, Olympic gymnastics, Kane Velasquez, salacious Super Bowl-level scandals. Join me on the dark side of sports by listening to Playing Dirty Sports Scandals on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.